amazing subject. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to Mark chapter 13. And as you are, as you turn there, let me also remind all of us that this Olivet Discourse, as we call it, is also recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, and Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. And it's helpful to read those accounts to put all of the details together. For instance, I think it is amazingly helpful for us to see what is written in Matthew's Gospel, and we'll have it here up on the screen, to really set the scene for Mark chapter 13. So in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, we have the disciples hearing Jesus weep over, seeing Jesus weep over Jerusalem and say, look, your house is left to you desolate. The Jews defiled it. Jesus was leaving it. The Romans would destroy it. We're talking about the temple. And so as Jesus in that last week of ministry was dealing with false teachers, dealing with those who were Pharisees, who had an outward form of religion but not denied the power thereof, he left the temple with these amazing words. Look, your temple is left to you empty, deserted. Now remember, this is the place of God's dwelling. It's symbolic of God restoring his people after the exile. All of the worship and the services were centered around this temple, and Jesus is saying it's empty. And then we read in chapter 24, verse 1, these words. Jesus left the temple, and as he was walking away, uh, his disciples came up to him and called attention to the buildings. Now, what did they say? Look at Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. One of the disciples, we don't know exactly who it was, said, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And as I said last week, I think this is the, the, the question of someone who didn't know what else to say. It's the small talk in an awkward moment. Jesus has just devastated their hopes with regard to this place that was so holy to them, and they didn't co know quite what to say. It's almost like the one disciple is saying, <clears throat> well, at least there's something good about it. Pretty impressive. Great architecture. Massive stones. So they're responding to the ministry of Jesus that seemed to put down the place they regarded as holy. And then Jesus said something that truly shocked them. It's not the beauty of the temple is what he refers to. It's the destruction of it. For he says in verse 2, Mark 13, verse 2, do you see all these great, massive, magnificent stones? Not one of them is going to be left on the other. But they are going to be thrown down, which speaks of violence. The stunned disciples, along with Jesus, leave the temple and walk down into the valley of Kidron and then make their way up to the Mount of Olives. Here's a famous picture done by James Tissot that I think gives a good indication, a good idea of, 
of what it might have looked like. You've got the four disciples there, which uh, Mark tells us about. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, two sets of brothers, the cream of the crop. You've got the valley in the background. You've got uh, a fig tree present that is going to be used in the sermon. And you've got the temple in the background. A little bit fuzzy, but here's another beautiful painting that was done by Enrique Simonet. And uh, this one is stirring as well. I don't like it as much because the, the city of Jerusalem is too far in the background. And it appears to be a, a sea right beyond the temple, if I can understand that correctly. And that's not exactly the way it is in Israel, but it's a cool painting. And it gives you a little bit of feel of what might have happened, what, what it might have been like as the disciples finally asked Jesus the question. Two questions, really. Verse 3 says, they were sitting down on the Mount of Olives, so they traveled through the valley, and now they'd come up to the Mount of Olives. It's 150 feet above the city of Jerusalem, and what a beautiful, dramatic vantage point that would be. And the disciples finally worked up enough nerve to ask Jesus, what in the world do you mean that this place is going to be destroyed? So verse 4 says, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So basically, there are two questions here. Question number one, when will this happen? When will these things take place, this destruction of the temple? And number two, what will be the signs of the end of the age. Now actually that phrase the end of the age comes out clearly in Matthew's gospel. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3 where you have this question clearly placed. It's not just the destruction of the temple they're worried about. When is this going to happen? And what are the signs with reference to the coming of Christ in the end of the age? Now I'm convinced the disciples put it all together. This is going to happen at the same time. When the temple is destroyed, that has to be the end of the age. And when the end of the age takes place, it has to be the coming of Christ. By the way, for the Jews, there are only two ages. The age that now is and the age to come. And the coming of Christ will end the first age and usher in the second. So they put it all together. But Jesus responds to the twofold question with a twofold answer. And he separates these events that the disciples had put together. And so the first part of Matthew 13, if I understand it correctly, focuses more on the destruction of Jerusalem and the second part on the coming of Christ and the end of the age. But there is some overlap. It's not clearly distinct. That is, some of the events that take place in the destruction of Jerusalem also will take place again at the end of the age, and that's what makes it so confusing. It's kind of like going to a theater, and, G and the movie, uh, the, the people in the theater give you a preview of coming attractions, right? And so you get to see a little bit of what's going to happen. And that's kind of what the disciples are seeing, except the events that they go through in their own lifetime are the previews, the preludes to what is coming later. So I'm convinced that the discussion here in Mark chapter 13 
talks about the destruction of Jerusalem that historically took place in 70 AD. But many of these events ultimately will be fulfilled, will be replicated, reproduced on a grander scale when Jesus comes again. We've got to use bifocals. You know what bifocals are, don't you? Many of you have them. I actually had LASIK surgery done, and for a period of time, I was able to preach without any glasses. But as I got older, the LASIK didn't work with words up close. And what I have now are glasses that are almost totally clear on the top, but bifocals on the bottom. That's more than you need to know. (laughs) But the point is, sometimes I need to look close, and sometimes I need to look far. And I need help in different directions. Sometimes as disciples, we need to look at the now, and sometimes as disciples, we need to look at the not yet. And theologians love to talk about the right now, but the not yet. That is, there are some portions of God's word that are being fulfilled right now, but they're not totally filled, not yet. And so you've got to be a bifocal type of Christian. And I think that's exactly what is happening here. So the destruction of Jerusalem, and we talked about it last week, the idea that deceivers are going to come. Charles Feinberg quote, uh, counted some 64 false messiahs that came after Jesus delivered this message, and I think before the destruction of Jerusalem. 64 different false messiahs. Wars and rumors of wars. But these are the beginning of birth pangs. Don't be alarmed. This is kind of just the very beginning of the labor and difficulty that you are going to face. You've got to be on your guard, verse 9 says. And you will stand before governors. There'll be times of tribulation, but that's when you're my witness. And then he mentions in verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, that's the time to flee. Now Matthew tells us when he uses this phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, that this is a quote from the book of Daniel. And you can go to Daniel, and he uses it, I think, three different times. In Daniel chapter 9 is the first time. He uses this phrase, and so the Jews were looking for that to happen, and they believed it happened for the first time in about uh, 167 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes, the uh, Greek warlord put an idol god on the altar in Jerusalem. And they said, ah, Daniel 9 has been fulfilled. And I think it was to some extent. When the Romans defeated and toppled the stones of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Titus, uh, the, the governor, or excuse me, the general of the army, actually allowed his soldiers to put up false gods in the temple once again. And the people said, the abomination that causes desolation. And I think that's what it referred to. But I believe it also refers to, and clearly connected with, the book of the Revelation, when the final abomination of desolation, the man of sin, as Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when the Antichrist comes, and in that holy place, sets up false idols, even statues of himself. 
You mean, Pastor, you think that that abomination of desolation is fulfilled three different times? Yeah, I think it is. But the ultimate one is yet coming. And you, what you see in Daniel chapter 9 about the abomination of desolation is clearly connected with the end times when you study the book of Revelation. So that's why you've got to hold the already and the not yet. The right now, but the still coming when we refer to the coming of Jesus Christ. So let's focus on that now, the coming of Jesus Christ. And we want to uh, begin with verse 24. Verse 24. But in those days following that great distress, or as some translations have it, the tribulation of those days. Notice it was mentioned in verse 19, the days of distress, unequaled from the beginning of creation and never to be equaled again. So I think there was, wonder, there was amazing distress happening. It was indeed a great tribulation for the Jews in 70 AD. It could hardly get worse. And yet the Bible tells us when this time has its ultimate fulfillment, it will be as bad as it ever gets. It will be unequaled. Maybe that's with reference to the Jewish people. But that's what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation, which is the very thing that happens before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we read in verse 24, but in those days following this Great Tribulation. So not following the destruction of Jerusalem, there's a period between. Remember we talked about the two mountain peaks last week? They appear to be very close, but actually they're separated now by thousands of years. But after that final great tribulation in those days, notice the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now we know that that hasn't happened yet. This is dramatic. This second coming of Jesus Christ is followed by cosmological confusion. It's like almost a reverse of creation. That's pretty dramatic. The lights that God established in the heavens all go dark. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Everything is shaken before Jesus comes again. Now that hasn't happened yet. Verse 26, and at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The second coming of Jesus Christ is visible. Now, we're not talking about the rapture of the church. It actually takes place before this. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is dramatic. It is visible. And every eye will see him. He comes in the clouds with great power and glory. And the announcement is this, what appears to be almost the destruction of the heavens. Matthew 24 says the coming of Jesus Christ will be like lightning going from the east to the west. Hard to ignore lightning, isn't it? We're also told in Matthew 24 that the nations will mourn. Now, the nation's mourning speaks to the fact that his coming is one of judgment, where indeed the nations are going to be brought to the seat of judgment before Jesus Christ. And the time of revelation will be a time of sadness. 
We're also told in Matthew 24 that the angels, when they come, are going to sound a loud trumpet. Verse 27, the angels will come and gather the elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and the ends of the heavens. So now you've got this gathering of believers. Believers are gathered together. So it's a time of judgment, but a time of restoration and rejoicing. What makes the difference between mourning and rejoicing? Between being cast out or gathered in when Jesus comes? It's knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the difference. He's the watershed of humanity. That's why you must choose this day whom you will serve. You need to give your heart to Christ or else when he comes, he will be the lion and not the redeeming lamb for you. This is when the lamb becomes a lion, when he comes again. But believers are gathered together. Boy, didn't Catherine do a great job on that song? I always love that song. And I was so thankful for the video, because without the video, I couldn't have gotten it back together. That song of hers just dissolved me into tears. To think of the coming of Christ, when things are restored, and righteousness is vindicated in a world that praises wickedness. What a great day that's going to be. But a horrible day for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke adds... This wonderful thought, Luke 21, verse 28. He says, when these things begin to take place, stand up. Lift up your heads, because your redemption draweth nigh, as the old King James says. The NIV says, your redemption is drawing near, not as poetic. When you see these events happening, Jesus is coming, your redemption. I thought I was already redeemed. Already, but not yet. You've got the first installment of your salvation. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You're working on the second installment of your salvation, being saved from the power of sin, that's sanctification. But you're not yet redeemed from the presence of sin. And when Christ comes, your full redemption is realized. And that, my friends, is what we need to be aware of as we live in this sin-cursed earth, that Jesus is coming and those who know him will be received and taken in with great rejoicing and those who don't know him are lost forever. So then Jesus says in verse 28, and I kind of think there was a fig tree nearby and maybe he gathered a twig or a branch it was the time of year when figs were just turning tender and you could tell the seasons were changing from Israel's spring into Israel's summer. Now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it, the, its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Now, the thing we need to know about the coming of Christ is that no one knows about the time of the coming of Christ. But we read this and we think, well, surely when we see some of these signs happening, that means that Jesus is near. And we often go back to the earlier signs, you know, there'll be deception and there'll be wars and rumors of wars. 
By the way, many Christians felt that when World War I came, it clearly was an indication that Christ had to be coming because it was the worst war that humanity had ever experienced. And they would point to Matthew 24 and to Mark 13. Wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation. This is it. Christ is coming. And he didn't come, and World War II came. And you know what some Bible teachers did? They went back to this section of Scripture in Mark 13, and it says, nation will rise against nation, that's World War I, and kingdom against kingdom, that's World War II. Oh, I hope you don't interpret the Scripture like that. Because you're always going to be wrong. What happens when there's another war? You don't have another verse to use. Don't be deceived when people say, this is it, this is it. Yeah, there are some signs, <clears throat> but some of these signs haven't happened yet. The cosmic changing of the sun, moon, and stars. And, and by the way, when these things happen, you know that Christ is here right at the door. What does that mean? I don't mean to blow your mind for a little bit, but let me try to put it in perspective. James, in James chapter 5 and verse 8 says, the Lord, coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is at the door. That was written in the first century A.D. And the judge hasn't come yet. What does that mean? Remember this verse? One day with the Lord is like a thousand years. And so I think what is happening is that the Lord wants us to be ready for his coming even though it's going to be a long time. I don't know when the Lord is coming back. And you say, surely it's going to be soon. I have a friend that keeps telling me that. It's going to be any day now. It's going to be any day now. And it could be. And when I say to him, it could be another thousand years, he says, oh, no, that couldn't, could never happen. Well, that's what they said a thousand years ago. I don't know. I do know the Lord is coming soon but I'm not sure that soon is in human language, on a human calendar. But I do know this, my going to him is very soon. That could be today. Jesus could come today or I could go to him. And I won't be around on this earth very long and I need to be prepared. There's a problem if people think Jesus is coming at any moment and they stop serving Christ. Did you know that that happened in the church of Thessalonica? Paul writes about it in, in Thessalon, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Why, some stop working. Why? Jesus is coming. I know of a man who was a preacher when he understood about the coming of Christ, was so convinced that Christ was going to come in his lifetime, he gave all his goods away. Three months later, he had to go out and buy a car because <laughs> he gave it away. Well-meaning. I love his conviction, but that's not what Jesus told us to do. Listen to this verse in Matthew 25 and verse 5. You don't need to turn there, but jot down the reference. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, so they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Wow. I've never seen that verse in this light before. Because it says in verse 36, near the end of the chapter, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you, what? 
sleeping. And so we react in two negative ways. One is, he's coming at any moment. I'm just going to stop planning for the future. Someone asked John Wesley, what would you do if you knew for sure Jesus was coming tomorrow, tomorrow evening? He opened up his diary and looked at his appointments to preach in different places. And he said, if Jesus was coming tomorrow night, I would still preach in those places. I'd just do what I planned to do. That's pretty good. Some of us stop working and we go to sleep, spiritual sleep. Paul said, listen, I want to wake you up from your spiritual sleep. Some don't have a knowledge of Christ. They don't have a knowledge of what it is to trust him as Savior. I speak this to your shame. It's not a day to sleep. He said, occupy until I Now, I'm not trying to take away the imminent return of Jesus Christ from your theology, and I want you to be looking every day. Today could be the day. Could, today could be the day. But don't let that cause you to be lazy. Because that's what happens to so many of us when we misunderstand. Verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, this is a hard verse for me. If it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem, it makes a lot of sense because it happened within a generation. But if it refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ, it probably means those who see the signs will see the coming of Christ within that generation. But notice verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they will not. Heaven and earth will dissolve, but the word of God will never fall away. So be on your guard, verse 33. Verse 32 says, although the day is certain in God's mind, no one knows the hour, not even the sun. Jesus willingly gave up the prerogative to know as God knows, left some of his divine privileges when he became a man. He knows now, but when he was on the earth, he willingly gave up that knowledge. So be on your guard, verse 33. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, watch. You don't know when Jesus is coming back, the owner of the house. It might be an evening. It might be at midnight. It might be morning when the rooster crows, which, by the way, those are the watches of the night that all the Jews followed. We don't know when. But when he comes, don't let him find you sleeping. I say this to all of you. Watch. Are you involved in activities that honor God so that if Jesus came at a moment's notice, you wouldn't be ashamed or found sleeping? I think one of the most powerful testimonies comes from the life of Robertson McQuilkin. Does that name ring a bell? Some of you are nodding. He was the president of Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina, now called Columbia University, a great missions college. He was a missionary in Japan, I think, for 12 years. His father was the president of Columbia Bible College, and he was kind of forced into it. He left the mission field, didn't want to, but was forced into being the president, and he was a fantastic president for years. And then his wife, Muriel, was stricken with Alzheimer's disease. 
And Robert McQuilkin left being president of Columbia Bible College to care for his wife. He said, when I'm around her, she's not distressed, but when I'm gone, she's frantic. And so the only thing I can do is to be with her all the time. And he left being a president of a Bible college, sending people out all over the world to be missionaries, preaching the word of God for care for his wife. You can go on YouTube and hear his resignation from the college. And it's a tearjerker. Talk about being faithful to your vows. But what if Jesus comes and he finds you sweeping the floor, preparing a meal? He says, I'm doing exactly what Jesus wants me to do. And he wrote this poem. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of years long spent. I fear not death. For that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forever into life, life with you, unspoiled and free. But I do fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon that I should end before I finish. <laughs> or that I should finish but not well that I should stain your name, your honor, defame you if I fell. So Lord, let me get home before it's dark. And each one of us should pray, Lord, let me not defame your name or fall asleep while it is still day. You are coming, your word is sure. Come and get me before the light of my soul, my faithfulness for you goes out. Lord, let me get home before it's dark. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, the most important thing for us as followers of Christ to know this morning is not the exact time when you're coming back. You've told us no one knows that. The most important thing is to know that you are coming, and we must be found faithful. Lord, may we, we be on our guard. May we turn from sin and live a life every day of devotion to Jesus. And may we fear not death, but failing you. Oh, Lord, I pray for South Church that you would revive us and renew us. I pray for my own soul that you would revive me and renew me. And with every day we have, may we be faithful to live as Christ would live and share the good news to those who are lost. For when Jesus comes, all humanity will be divided. Lord, Lord those are sobering words. Bless us as a congregation today. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to finish our service in a little different way, and this really isn't connected with the sermon, but I'm going to have the ushers come down and hand to you a little survey called a South Snapshot.
You don't write your name on this survey, but there are just a few questions to, a to answer, boxes to check. We want you to, refer, uh, to uh, give us information like how long have you been coming to South, male or female, how old are you? If you're a first-time guest, write that down. Regular attender or member, check those boxes. Um, give us any information about how you connect with the church, website, social media. Are you connected with any ministry? <clears throat> Are you currently serving? Are you part of a small group? All of that is on this brief card. And what I would like for you to do is to just check off the boxes. And then in a moment, the ushers are going to come down and pick up these cards. This is supposed to take seven minutes. I think I've already gone four. <clears throat> if for some reason we conclude the service and you're not done, you can finish it and hand it to an usher or drop it in a box in the Welcome Center on the way out. Don't put your name on this. I suppose you could if you want to, but we're not looking for that. And the ushers are going to come back. Just hand the surveys to the end of the pew when you're done. We're going to do this again next week, but if you do it today, don't fill one out next week. We'll tell you that again because if I were you, I would forget. If you happen to go to another service today, don't fill another one out. Don't stuff the ballot box with answers that you think might be advantageous to you. That's not the purpose of this survey. But we need a snapshot just to get an idea of who's coming to South and how to better minister to you, how to be more effective in our service for you. So guests, members, please fill it out. Check the appropriate boxes. And then pass it to the end. There was no box that says Republican or Democrat, <clears throat> Baptist or Methodist. That will come in our next survey. All right, I hope you're finishing up. easiest test you've ever taken. All your answers are right. <clears throat> and now I simply want to dismiss you with this blessing. The Bible tells us, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord have his face and his love, his countenance to shine upon you. May the Lord give you blessing and peace as you seek to serve him faithfully. Goodbye. God bless you. Thank you.